1: Oh, Lord, may your words only be spoken and may your words only be heard in the name of Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is not what you would call your typical conventional wisdom. In fact, if we were to anachronistically characterize it, we might call it betting against the market. Poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hunger, mercy, peacemaking, persecution. These don't look like attributes or experiences or to celebrate or pursue if long-term success is what you're hoping for. Unless you're very lucky or unless you work for Goldman Sachs, betting against the market over the long haul is a losing proposition. As Jesus knew... This teaching was not for the faint of heart. The gospel passage opens up by telling how Jesus moves up the side of the mountain away from the crowds. And then when he sits, which is the authoritative position for teaching, when he sits, that's when his disciples, his disciples draw near. While his teaching was always open to everyone, it's in fact only those who are really serious about getting it, who actually drew near to him on a consistent basis. The community that gathered around this gospel, around Matthew's gospel, a generation or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, had experienced this teaching as life-giving, as the very presence of Christ with them. Jesus was present to them to the extent that this teaching, Jesus' teaching, was lived out among them. And it was a community that had begun to experience hardship from the Romans. Of course, the Romans didn't fancy having another cult undermining the authority of the emperor. They made life hard for Christians and also from their former co-religionists, Jews, who, unlike the Jews in Matthew's community, had decided they couldn't follow. Jesus as the Messiah, as the Lord, as the Savior, and they had come to know that through this hardship, through this hardship, that betting against the conventional wisdom that acknowledging these attributes and realities and experiences, poverty of spirit and meekness, purity of heart, mourning and so forth through these attributes and realities and experiences, they could actually release. Release God's blessings for them. Now, I think it's instructive to take a look at just the first beatitude, which sets the tone for the beatitudes that follow. And in fact, for all of the teaching that follows in the Gospel of Matthew. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke in Aramaic, which was a spoken form of Hebrew, and the word for poor in Aramaic denoted a person with no earthly resources whatsoever, nothing, absolutely nothing. As this word poor comes to us in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was actually written in, the Greek word for poor means completely abjectly poverty stricken, nothing, not two coins to rub together, maybe not even clothes on your back, nowhere, nowhere to live, food, none, nothing, absolutely nothing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Acknowledging our need, being aware of the extent of the depth of our lack of inner resources, is the prerequisite for receiving anything for receiving anything. If we stubbornly cling to the illusion that we have all the answers that we can face our challenges alone on our own power, that we can face our own heartaches alone, then we block the blessing that God has to offer to us. The 12 step tradition has distilled this wisdom. Into its way of helping people heal from addictions, the first step, some of you may know, is the admission that we have no power over that which bedevils us. We accept that we're at the end of our strength. We have no more inventiveness, no more resourcefulness. We're done. We've hit a brick wall in making sense of or stopping what we're experiencing, the pain, the heartache, whatever it might be. And as we put to death the illusion that we alone can make sense of our pain, then there is room for the power, for the blessedness of God to enter in. I think this is one way to understand what Paul is talking about this morning when he talks about the cross. And that powerful meditation from his letter to the Corinthians, as he meditates on the foolishness and the power of the cross, the truth of the cross, the power of the cross is in its reminder that we are without power to save ourselves. We want to think that we have the resources to save ourselves, but we don't. As Paul puts it, the whole world thinks that this way of thinking is bunk. Everyone thinks it's ridiculous, except for those who have known and are experiencing it to be the very word of God, the very truth that is keeping them going. I imagine every one of us here has had opportunities to face powerlessness, to face Challenge to face the limits of our endurance, of our energy, of our compassion. And as we seek to follow the teaching of Jesus, particularly these difficult teachings, we may find ourselves having to wrestle very, very hard with just where is this blessing right now? As I'm facing poverty of spirit, where? Where is it? We might think, Back to the Hebrew Bible story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. He will not let go. He will not let the angel let him go until he has received the blessing that he knows is there for him. This wrestling may be in the context of uh, the rupture of a painful, the painful rupture of a relationship, maybe in the wake of a divorce or in the realization of the limits of our health, the limits of our independence, we may come to this wrestling in the context of looming financial insecurity or in consistent failure to find work that means something that will pay the rent, the mortgage. I know in my own life, there was a time when I experienced what felt like. Great, great personal rejection, a whole wave of rejection. And I wondered, you know, what was the matter with me? Where had I failed? I felt I had poured myself out and been greeted with polite disclaimers of it's nothing personal. When in fact, it felt extremely personal. And as I struggled, as I wrestled. Through the anger and the sadness and the fear in this period, in my prayer and in my conversation with others, a new awareness began to dawn on me, kind of bloom from within me. I knew not from where. An awareness of gratitude for where I was. An awareness of The many blessings that were, in fact, being poured upon me. I grew aware of a new freedom to take risks, of opportunities to live free from fear, of the opportunities to grow and to stretch in my faith and in my trust of God and others. Now, surely I would not have chosen this way in the blessing, no way. And I know that those of you who have come this way would not have chosen your way. And yet it became crystal clear that somehow in the great poverty of spirit that I was experiencing, there was ample, ample room to receive God's blessing, God's prodigious, constant, overflowing. Blessing. I'm told that the translation from the ancient languages that is in English, blessed, blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, leaves a little bit to be desired. The translation doesn't quite capture what it is that Jesus is trying to say. It's more like. In the Hebrew or the Aramaic underneath it, it's more like, oh, the blessedness. Oh, the blessedness. Do you hear the difference there? Oh, the blessedness of poverty of spirit. Oh, the blessedness of mourning. Oh, the blessedness of the meek. That phrase, oh, the blessedness, it contains, it transmits somehow a sense of the awe and of the mystery in a blessing that cannot, cannot be earned, cannot be striven for. It can only be received with gratitude as resurrection from the dead. As resurrection from the dead. Amen.